Good morning. We're going to be in Psalm 10. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourselves in times of trouble? In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised. For the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high, out of his sight. As for all his foes, he puffs at them. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. He sits in ambush in the villages. In hiding places, he murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in his thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws him into his net. The helpless are crushed, sink down, and fall by his might. He says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. O rise, O Lord, O God, lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account? But you do see, for you note mischief and vexation, that you may take it in your hands. To you the helpless commits himself, that you have been the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed, so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. This is the word of the Lord. All right, who are my fellow corrective lens wearers out there? All right, glasses, people, you're obvious. Contacts, you're less visible to us. All right, so you know, like you go to the optometrist and they hand you that little card and you're holding that card in front of you like this and you're reading the lines as the letters get smaller and smaller and they're checking your near vision. And then they do that, that thing where they put the image up across the wall, which is like a form of like voodoo magic now, if you know how they do this. It's like, it's actually on a mirror behind you and it's like reflecting. So you can look behind you and all the letters are backwards, but it's over there. And as you're looking across the room without your lenses, you're, you're going down, there's the big E at the top and you're coming down you're like, yeah, I don't, I don't know. Like I just, I can see that there's something there, but I do not know what those letters are. And if that's you, you're nearsighted. You can see things close and they are in focus, but the things that are further away are not in focus. They're not discernible to you. And the more I process this particular psalm, the more I realized it's showing us an honest example of spiritual nearsightedness as well as the cure for that condition. Okay, so as, as Maddie just read this, here's kind of like an overview of the psalm because we're not going to touch on every single detail here. But you notice kind of what this psalm is about is that the wicked are pursuing the righteous and it's serious. I mean, we, we get into this and we, we read words like ambush and pursuit and we read about kidnapping and exploitation and even murder. So what's going on here, probably in David's life, 
is extraordinarily serious, and he's crying out to God in a lament and saying, God, like the, the righteous, those who are trying to live in obedience to your word and to your law, we are languishing. We are in dire straits. And it seems like the wicked are literally getting away with murder. So that's what this psalm is about. Um, by the way, as Richard mentioned last week, this probably was initially one psalm with Psalm 9, because what we don't see in our English Bibles is that Psalm 9 and 10 together form an acrostic. So each verse, as we think of verses, is starting with the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So it's very probable that these were initially two psalms put together. What's unique about this particular psalm, Psalm 10, and maybe the reason it's split up, um, you'll notice it has a very different tone than Psalm 9. That's one thing. But also in Psalm 10, there's this interesting thing that David does where he goes back and forth reflecting on his own thoughts, but then also like from almost like an omniscient perspective as, as good literature is often written, going to the perspective of the wicked. And he's actually speaking for them and he's reflecting on these are the thoughts of the wicked as they pursue and persecute the righteous. And what you'll see in the psalm is that even though these thoughts and intents of the heart are coming from completely different perspectives, they actually work together to reveal one theme. And I'll give you that theme and we'll restate it throughout. But here's what this psalm is saying. Wisdom entails choosing to see things from God's perspective and trusting him as a result. So the wicked would be warned, like, you are not seeing things from God's perspective at all. And this is a warning for you. It's a caution for you. Turn and see things from God's perspective, not from your own perspective. And it's also an encouragement to the righteous who are floundering with some kind of trial in their life. And it's saying, choose to see things from God's perspective and trust him as a result. And we'll go through this psalm with these three points. First, we'll look at the claims of the wicked and then the complaints of the afflicted and then the corrective lens of God. So number one, the claims of the wicked. And by the way, when I say wicked, why am I using that word? Because we we're not like, oh, the wicked in our culture. It feels very us, them, as if we don't also struggle with sin. But David starts this psalm repeating the wicked, the wicked, the wicked in the first few verses. And he's using a word rasha, which means those who are guilty of violating a known standard. That's what the word, so it's a focus on guilt because there's a standard and it's been violated. So it's, it's the opposite of righteousness because that word righteous in the Hebrew means conformity to the standard, obedience to the standard. So the idea of wicked is like you're, you're breaking God's law. And it's easy to see throughout the psalm, there are numerous violations of God's law. It's like their thoughts, their motives, the intents of their heart, their attitudes, their actions, they're all sinful. And verses two through four indicate that in pride, in selfishness, in greed, the hearts of these people who are violating God's law are just pumping out these boastful claims and there's kind of an interesting thing here, verse 4, because there are four claims here. Verse 4, verse 6, verse 11, and verse 13, he'll repeat this phrase, he says in his heart, he says in his heart, he says in his heart. 
And what he's showing you is he, he's going to now show you that there are these claims that the wicked is making in his own heart that now he's going to act on the way he views God. So let's look at these four claims. First of all, verse four, all his thoughts are, there is no God. The point is, the wicked are often functional atheists. And the idea here is not that they have rationally examined like the origins of the world and all that's in it and they've concluded rationally there is no God. This world came into being without God. The point is they think and plan and scheme as if there is not a God. They're persecuting the righteous as if there is no ultimate authority or accountability. And I think verse four is the foundational claim that's then gonna underlie these other claims that kind of stack on top of it. Just first of all, it's just like, I'm gonna live my life as if there is no God, as if there is no authority that's gonna hold me to a standard. Okay, so then the second claim, verse six, and you'll see how these start to build and intensify. Verse six, he, that is the wicked, says in his heart, I shall not be moved throughout all generations. I shall not meet adversity. And the thought here is, if there's no God, who's going to punish me? Who's going to stop me? Who, who cares about other people? I'm thriving, and I don't see anyone changing that anytime soon. And by the way, you'll see and maybe even know people or know culture in general that live with these kinds of unstated, unwritten claims going on in their heart. Just like, I'm thriving, I'm doing well, who's gonna stop me? And the attitude here is just like, I won't be moved. No, no one's gonna knock me down, I'm good. Third claim, verse 11, he says in his heart, again, the wicked says in his heart, God has forgotten, he has hidden his face, he will never see it. And Richard touched on this language of forgetting and remembering last week, that it's, he's not saying, God has forgotten that sin is a thing. He just, he just blanked on it. Like, no, that's not what he's saying. The, the forgetting and remembering in an Eastern cultural sort of way is like, what do you choose to focus on? So when you forget something, it's like your focus is somewhere else. It's not that you literally don't know about this thing, but it's like my, my focus has shifted. And to remember something is to call it to mind. It's not like, oh, I remember where I put my keys or my phone it's to call it to mind. And what the wicked is saying here, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. He's like, God isn't paying any attention. And again, like you understand as these claims layer on top of each other, now you're already seeing that it's not that he doesn't believe there's no God. I mean, he may start with that, like there's no God. But now he's saying like, well, there is a God, but like, what's he gonna do? There, there is a God, but he's hidden his face. He'll never see and all he's saying is God has lost sight of the fact that there are terrible people like me doing terrible things. He's somewhere else. His focus is on something else. I'm not getting his attention and I'm not going to get his attention. So I'm not worried about the way I'm living. And then this fourth claim of the wicked, verse 13, he says in his heart, you will not call to account. And you see the boast just getting worse and worse because the idea here is like, okay, okay, okay. Even if God does see what I'm doing to oppress and afflict these righteous people for personal gain, he's not going to do anything about it. 
Like, he's not going to investigate what I've done. He's not going to press charges. He's not going to hold me accountable. He's not going to do anything. And that's the, that's the spirit of what these claims are saying. And if you're wondering, like, where do these attitudes, like, where, do that, where does that come from that someone in their heart would be like, okay, there's a God, but I'm going to live as if there's not, and what's he really going to do? And, like, I don't care. There's, there's no accountability in the end for the way I'm living my life. Well, you notice again, backing up to verses two through four, and these are important, that kind of thinking starts with pride. And it starts with misordered desires that are not controlled by the mind of Christ or by the parameters of God. It starts with boastfulness. It starts with greed. It starts with, you notice this, it starts with renouncing the Lord. So again, I I think you would see this a lot of times in people today, they would say, well, I, I'm an atheist. I just don't believe in God. And it's not like in the, in the language of Romans 1, which is the New Testament example of what's being said here. It's not that people literally, again, have done all the research and concluded, yeah, I just know for a fact, scientifically, there is no God. It's, I don't want to follow God. I don't, like, I want to rule my own life. I want to do what I want to do. And so God gets pushed to the side. He gets renounced, which is like the idea of like, yes, I know that he's there, but I reject him. I treat him with contempt. I'm going to live the way I want to live. And by the way, this is, this is a real world problem. What's happening with these boastful claims that are layering now on top of each other is if the law isn't enforced... If people start thinking like there's no authority here at all, and if there is, they're not going to do anything about it. Well, what happens is sin gets worse. Crime gets worse. People do not flourish. Culture is not healthy. Trouble and misery multiply for innocent people because if people see like, okay, I can do all these bad things and the authority is not going to do anything about it, that doesn't diminish crime. That allows things to flourish. Okay, so then the second point won't surprise you. If the righteous are seeing crime is flourishing, pain is flourishing, but healthy, productive, mutually fulfilling relationships are crushed. Well, the second point then is the complaints of the afflicted. And I think there are three of these. So first in verse one, This is now David or the psalmist speaking for himself. Why, O Lord, do you stand afar off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? And you can hear the writer asking, God, where are you? Like you're supposed to be a very present help in times of need. And yet here I am in desperate need and you are nowhere to be found. You are nowhere to be found. And I think every single one of you can relate that there has been a time or times or there is a time right now, a season in your life right now, circumstances in your life right now where you in faith are calling on God and you're like, God, I, I acknowledge I need you. I need rescue from this thing. I need healing. I need hope. I need help. I need a word from you. Like maybe a word of encouragement, maybe a word of direction. Like I'm trying to seek your will and I'm like, God, do I do this or do I do this? And I just, I just need you to speak even through your word. And you are nowhere to be found to answer this cry of an honest and humble heart. Okay. 
you can relate to that or you have related to that before and you will relate to that again. God, where are you? Why, why are you so far off? I'm like, I don't even know where heaven is. And now that we've got pictures from this web telescope, I, I really don't know where heaven is, but it's like you are way, way out there somewhere and I believe that you're there and I believe that you're real and I believe that you're my savior and I believe you're king. But why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Where in the world are you? Is what he's asking. It's a complaint. It's a lament. Second complaint, verse five, he goes on and he's saying, the ways of the wicked prosper at all times. And here he's pondering, God, how is it that, and the psalmist is not saying I'm perfect. I've, I've got it all down. I am completely compliant with God's law at all times. That's not the idea of righteousness in the Old Testament. The idea of righteousness is I, I am ordering my life after the law of God. Am I perfect at that? Am I, no. Am I falling and getting back up and making sacrifices to cover and atone for my sin? Yes. But that's what he's saying. He's like, God, I'm trying to follow you. And when I sin, like we have whole Psalms where the same writer is repenting of that and confessing that and saying, God, I was wrong. And like Richard read one of these earlier, like my, my bones were like rotting away within me because I was hiding sin. I confess it and I come clean before you. But he's like, I'm trying to live a righteous, holy life in faith. And my experience is nothing but trouble. And I look over here at the wicked people who have no regard for your law, no regard for your holiness, no regard for your love or their love for a fellow man or fellow woman. They're just crushing people and they are thriving. And he's like, I'm frustrated about that, God. And maybe you feel that way too. Maybe you look at someone in a company that you work for, just as an example, and you're like, this person is rotten to the core. Why is he at the top of the company? It's because he's willing to lie, cheat, steal, and sleep his way to the top. So there he is at the top. And here am I. So, so you understand the psalmist's complaint of like, God, I'm trying. And you may feel like, God, I give a couple nights a week to church activities. And I don't mean like structured stuff's going on, but I have friends over and I'm doing life with them. And uh, like a bunch of singles went camping together this week. It's like, I didn't just go off and do my own thing. I went camping with a church group and like we had some great conversations, like encouraging each other on this trip, but life hurts. And again, I look over here at these people who are making no effort, no nights of their week, no generosity with their finances, no love for someone else. And they're just flourishing. Everything seems awesome for them. That doesn't seem fair. And then a final complaint, also verse five, he says, your judgments are on high out of the wicked's sight. Now this is an interesting complaint and I think it bears a little bit of explanation. The word judgments that he uses here is the word mishpat, which is like all over the Old Testament. And we would probably translate it justice, but the idea of mishpat is both the authority to render a verdict and the just verdict itself, okay? So he's basically saying, okay, God, I acknowledge you have the authority to render a verdict on the life of the wicked and your judgment is actually right and fair and equitable, but, but what's the complaint? He says, your judgment is on high out of their sight. So it's like this, imagine a crime is committed against you here in Denver and so you are going to court to seek 
a just punishment for the criminal and a just compensation for you as the victim. Okay, so you go to Denver District Court and the judge presiding in your case, you would say he has both the legal authority to render a verdict and he actually needs to render a just verdict. So imagine you go through whatever, days or weeks of trial and right before the verdict is read, the sentence is passed, this judge says, hey, like I wanna come back in my chambers like with your attorney, with your representative and uh, I just wanna talk to you before, before the verdict. So you get back there and he's, he's like, hey, go ahead and sit down. So here's the thing. I know that person is guilty. I know that you're the victim of this terrible thing. So I'm about to render a verdict on your behalf. But here's the thing. I'm not going to record that verdict in the court record. I'm just letting you know I'm for you. My heart breaks for you. I'm 100% for you. But I'm going to go back out there publicly and sit on the bench and just let that person go. Are, are you cool with that? Knowing that I know what I know and you know what I know and we're, we're good, right? And you'd be like, no, I, I'm not good. What is the value of you like in your head or in some distant place rendering a true verdict, but that verdict doesn't come down and touch the life of the person who's guilty. So therefore it doesn't come down and touch the life of the person who's innocent and needs your defense. That's, that's the weight of what the writer is saying here. He's like, wait, you're, you're rendering a verdict in my favor, but the bad guy's not going to see it. He's not going to know in real time that you're actually for me and against him. Like, what, what good is that? How does that fix anything, God? And so you can understand why this almost is complaining, okay? I want to summarize these complaints. He's like, God, you seem absent when trouble comes. The wicked seem to flourish, even though they're doing the very things you told them not to do. And even though you're a God of justice and you're rendering a just verdict, you're not going to make that known right now. So I will continue to languish. And I want to just like pause and take a deep breath before we go to the corrective lens. And just, I want you to feel what the psalmist feels. And maybe some of you already do. But I know when I pull up a news article on CNN.com or whatever, and I read about atrocities that Russian soldiers are committing against Ukrainian soldiers, and I'm not going to go into what they're doing, but it's, it's vile. There's something in my heart that's like, God, you could, you could come down. You could do something. And yet thousands of innocent people are dying, and they're being mutilated and tortured before they're being killed. It's vile. It's horrible. And I know your judgment in heaven is that you're against that stuff. I don't doubt that for a moment. But what good does that do? What good does that do that, that you're not just theoretically against it, you're against it, but you're, you're not coming down and stopping those evil people from doing those evil things. And it is evil. And you don't even have to like look at the world news because it's all over the place. You can, you can look at your own life again, like maybe in a, in a work setting, in a vocational setting. You're like, God, there's so much unfairness there. And I'm trying to do the right, like I listened to the faith and work series that we just had. Okay, I'm trying to do that stuff and implement my faith and really live on mission for Jesus as I create good things for the flourishing of other people. But the, w there's no reward in that. 
I don't see God making a difference in my vocation since I started living more intentionally about my work or being a better neighbor. So it certainly feels like the wicked, evil bullies on the block are winning. And it certainly feels like sometimes God's justice is, I would say, it's tardy at best. It's just too late in coming to make any difference. Because if we saw, you know, again, just using the Russian Ukrainian, if we saw like an evil despot lobbing missiles into another country and just killing innocent people, and God's just like, bam, done. Well, that stuff wouldn't happen very often. But God doesn't do that. And so you can see why both the wicked just continue to make these claims of like, if there is a God, what's he going to do? Nothing. Exactly. And you can see why if you're trying to live a humble life of love for others and obedience to Christ, why you're like, I'm just frustrated. I'm spent, God. I I don't want to get up another day and click on the news or read a news article and hear about yet another thing that some evil person did to someone else and you're not going to do anything about it. And I just want to say, like, before I go to this final point, the irony here is like, what do the righteous and the wicked actually have in common in this psalm, I mean? What do they actually agree about? They both agree God is out to lunch. And in the wicked's mind, if God is out to lunch, that means I can do greater wickedness. In the righteous person's mind, if God is out to lunch, I'm not going to do greater wickedness, but I fall deeper, deeper into hopelessness and despair and frustration. So point three, the corrective lens of God. So I wear contact lenses. If you didn't know that, now you know my dirty little secret's out. And here's the thing, like every morning when I put those corrective lenses on my eyeballs, the way I understand what that's doing is it's actually bending the, like the little beams of all this light that's coming into my eyes and it focuses that image on my retina. Whereas without those, it like, they're hitting different places and so the image is very blurry, okay? So it's, I put those on so it focuses what's there. Here's the thing, if we look at our world and our circumstances without reference to God and the gospel, it's not that the things we're seeing are not real. Okay, I want you to hear me say that. It's not like I see pain and brokenness and I see the wicked thriving and God's like, okay, now you put these lenses in and you can see like that was an illusion, right? It's not an illusion. That stuff is really happening. It's true. Okay, so I'm not saying wickedness, injustice, suffering, they're an illusion. I'm saying they're out of perspective and they will never be in perspective unless we put on the lens of God's truth. And that's what the rest of the psalm is about. So I want you to notice this turning point in verse 12. When the writer says, so he's complain, 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 claim of the wicked, claim of the wicked, complain of the wicked. God, we're languishing. It's not fair. Where are you? Verse 12, arise, O Lord, O God, lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. By the way, a lot of turning points in a lot of Psalms start with those words, arise, O Lord. You're like, how is that a turning point? Well, in calling on the Lord to arise, the writer's reminding himself, I'm calling on a God who has the ability to rise up and do something, okay? So he's, he's exhorting his own heart. He's putting on a lens that refocuses his thing. He's like, I'm, I'm not just crying out to a God who is just distant. I'm saying, God, rise up and do something in real time. 
to punish the wicked, to give me hope, to change my complaining heart into a heart of acceptance and joy. So I'm adjusting my perspective. Okay, so when we focus on the situation immediately before us, both the wicked and the righteous assume wrongly, God doesn't see or hear. God is forgotten. God doesn't care. God's not gonna administer justice. Therefore, the bullies are gonna rule the block at all times. But notice now the corrective lenses that the author's putting on verses 14 through 18, because this Psalm does take a turn and it does end on a very positive note. He says, okay, here are my assumptions. You don't see, you don't care. You're not gonna administer justice. Verse 14, but you do see. Oh, you do see. For you note mischief and vexation that you may take it into your hands. To you, the helpless commits himself. You have been a helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. Oh Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. And you notice all the ways the author is like, I'm gonna put on these lenses and God in faith, I'm gonna say, change my perspective. And here's what he's arguing. He's like, God, you have made yourself known. You do see, you do hear, you do care, you do hold the wicked accountable. You do justice on behalf of the afflicted. So in the end, the wicked are trapped in their own snare. In the end, the wicked come to nothing. In the end, those who seek refuge in God are saved. And by the way, as we we say these Psalm 9 and 10 are probably connected, I now encourage you, not right now, but later this week, go back and read chapter 9. And realize how, like, it's kind of in reverse order. But, like, chapter 9 is almost like he's put those corrective lenses in. And he's not, he's almost speaking in past tense. Like, God, you have done this. You are a shelter. You were a shelter. You protected. You did this thing. And I will praise you for your wonderful works. And, yes, the psalmist is, in a sense, looking back on things that God did before. And he's saying, I don't want to forget about stuff God did before just because life's hard right now. But he's also speaking of the future in past tense, because he so believes that God will make things right. He's like, I can, speak it, I can speak of it as if it's already done. So go back to chapter nine and you can read about how he is putting on these corrective lenses and he's like, okay, as I languish, as I struggle, God, it's as if you've already done these things for me. It's as if the wicked have already fallen into their own trap. It's as if you've already been a shelter and a strong tower and all of those things that he mentions in nine, okay? So again, I wanna, I wanna hold these things in tension because you're like, well, in the short run, yes, wicked seems to prosper very often, right? Liars, cheaters, thieves, narcissists, slanderers, they seem to be winning. And you see that in your personal life. You see that in your work culture. It looks bad on the scale of neighborhoods cities, states, nations, globally, the world. You know, it's like we're we're standing on the precipice of World War III, and this time we have nuclear weapons and hypersonic missiles. Yay. You know, that's, that's not exciting. 
And it can seem like faithfulness to God, to faith, to godly character, it's like, what benefit is that? But God's saying, that's not the whole picture. Don't, don't have this myopic, nearsighted view of everything. Now, here's the thing. It's true that God is often not working when we want and how we want. And isn't that because we want God to work now? Always. I mean, how many of you are like, I'm struggling we're not like Pharaoh. You know, it's like the, the plagues and it's like, okay, Moses comes. He's like, when do you want us to take the plagues away? And I, what would you say? Right now. He's like, ah, eh, I don't know, tomorrow, I guess, what, you know, whatever. No, when, when we want God to act because we're frustrated and we're in a trial and it hurts and we're suffering, we're not like, hey, what, whenever, it's cool. We're like, I want you to fix it now. And I want you to fix it the way that my mind has conceived the best possible solution. And we have to be honest that God often does not do that. He doesn't do it now and he doesn't do it the way that we thought was the best way to do it. But I want you to think about this higher purpose. So when David writes this psalm and he's like, I got all these enemies, they are plundering, they are raping, they are murdering, they are kidnapping, they are exploiting. Who are his enemies that he's writing about? And it's a little bit of a trick question because it's like, we don't know because he doesn't say. But we do know from other narratives in scripture, he could have been talking about Saul. He could have been talking about his son, Absalom, who betrayed him and had a military coup. He could be talking about a kingdom that was against him and against Israel, like the Philistines, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Edomites, or the Arameans. And if you're like the who, that's my point. Who are the Philistines? Who are the Edomites? Who are the Arameans? Do we even know who their descendants are today? It's like, no, because they're, they're gone. They're long gone. So verse 16 is true. He says, the Lord is king forever and ever, but the nations perish from his land because it's his land and they may come and go. And that's the point that as ruthless as these nations and individuals were, they are long gone. Attila the Hun is long gone. Paul Pot is long gone. Adolf Hitler and Joseph Stalin are long gone. I would say the despotic leaders of nations like Russia and North Korea and China right now, they will soon be long gone. One of my favorite short poems is this poem, Ozymandias by Percy Shelley. Let me just read it for you and see if you can figure out what it's saying, okay? He says, I met a traveler from an antique land who said, two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them, on the sand, half sunk, a shattered visage lies, whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that its sculptor well those passions read, which yet survive stamped on these lifeless things. The hand that mocked them and the heart that fed and on the pedestal, these words appear. My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. And Percy Shelley saying what this psalm is saying. Oh, terrifying king of kings, look, you mighty, and despair. And it's like, there you are, this mostly buried relic of the past. Who's Ozymandias? Nobody knows. Now, this is probably still hard to hear when your life hurts, 
when you're the one waiting on deliverance or justice and you're like, oh, okay, cool. Like someday somebody's going to find the relic of the person that was abusive toward me. But I want to share with you in closing a, a resource of hope that David did not have when he wrote this that you and I do have. So many years later after this and many years ago, the people of God, the, the Jews, were languishing under both foreign oppression and spiritually abusive leadership from their own people. Languishing. And you look at the situation in the Gospels and it's like the rich are getting richer, the powerful are getting more powerful, and anybody who's just trying to live a humble life of obedience to the law of God and show up to synagogue every week and continue to learn about this Messiah who's going to one day come and make everything right, like they're getting walked all over. And there is a weight of injustice to this entire culture. And into this world stepped the only righteous, truly righteous man who ever lived, Jesus Christ. And though he always pleased the Father, always did the right thing, said the right thing, had the right heart attitudes. He was falsely accused of both sedition and blasphemy, and he was sentenced to die. And as that innocent man is hanging on a cross, it looks like there's no God. It looks like Psalm 10. Like, oh, if there is, there's, there's no God. How, how can the righteous man be on a cross if there's a God? Explain that. And you're like, okay, well, well, there is a God, but he's forgotten him. His focus is somewhere else. He's out to lunch. He, he's not going to hold these wicked to account. And he's not going to give this man the justice and the mercy that he deserves for living the life that he should have lived and that we should have lived. And it's like, if there is a God, he's either cruel or oblivious or both because there's Jesus on a tree. And by the way, dying in anguish, Jesus paraphrased verse 1 of Psalm 10. He said it this way, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's not just where are you. It's not just why are you afar off. It's like, you have turned your back on me. And he died. So can I suggest the first 11 verses of Psalm 10 seem tragically and hopelessly true when Jesus dies on the cross. Great, the wicked flourish. Great, the righteous languish. And they're killed. And there's no justice. And maybe God in heaven somewhere is like, I delight in my son. Like, whoop-de-doo. It doesn't look like that. How did that help your son? But I say we have a hope because on the third day, Jesus rose from the dead. Like he comes back and the father's like, do you see now what you didn't see before? I told you this was going to happen. I told you he would lay down his life for you and I would bring him back and he would defeat sin. He would defeat all wickedness. He would defeat death itself. And anyone who finds safety and shelter in him will be saved. But, but you lost it for three days because you couldn't look far enough ahead. And so again, the, the theme that the psalm is coming to is like, you, you've got to put on those corrective lenses of God, help me to see things from your perspective, not just from my perspective. And you can even do this of like with your hands of like, how much of the world do I see when I'm doing this? But so often we are obsessing about the pain and the brokenness, and it's not an illusion. Again, you're not making it up. It's really happening to you. It's really happening in our world but we need to see this. 
we need to see the truth of verse 16. The Lord is king forever and ever. And so let me just conclude with this. I would say, number one, confront the dialogue that's going on in your heart. I'm bringing that up again because, again, remember the wicked, the fool, he says in his heart, he says in his heart, he says in his heart. So we do the same thing. We have a narrative on repeat in our hearts, in our minds. And when life hurts, that narrative that we're playing over and over again is probably not a healthy or completely true narrative. It may be partially true, but it's not all the truth. So if you see, I'm, I'm playing an inner dialogue over and over again. It's like, okay, fine, I believe there's a God, but I don't think you care about me. I don't think you're going to hold the wicked to account. I don't think you're going to make things right. Okay, at the end of time, wonderful, great, when it's too late, confront that dialogue and then look further ahead to see the big picture, okay? We have another driver in our home now. Super exciting. Everyone congratulate Maddie for her driver's license. Let's go. Come on. But I'm going to use a driver's ed illustration because I, I totally forget that about this, just like driving all the time. Then you go through driver's ed and you hear these trainers saying something and I'm like, oh yeah, that's, that's a really good principle. So when you're learning to drive, if you remember back this far, or some of you, like this is a free tip for those of you underage, you're not driving yet. But this is true even on your bike, kids, or your skateboard. But your tendency is when you're learning to drive, you're, you're kind of looking like right off the hood of your car because you're like, I don't want to hit anything. So I'm looking like obviously right here in front of me. And, uh, and that's not safe, is it? So what what these driver's ed folks will teach and master drive and all that is like, and they call it like defensive driving. And the idea is don't look right here. Look way out there. And as you're driving toward that distant thing that you see, or you're, you're looking as far as you can around that curve, you start to notice more things. You're like, I, okay, I see this person like way out here and they're merging onto the highway and I can see that as I scan with my peripheral. And now if I'm looking here, I didn't notice that person coming in. Or I'm approaching this four-way stop and like, of course, I'm going to stop and then I'm going to go. Oh, wait, no, it's, it's a green light. And so I'm just going to go. And you're looking farther ahead so you notice like that person approaching this intersection on a red signal is not slowing down. So you're aware of that and you're on your break. So all these things that you're seeing, you're looking further around the curve and so you're like, oh, there's a deer that just darted out. So I like, again, I'm getting on the break or I swerve if I have to. My point is what intuitively feels safest is looking right here. What's actually safer is to take in all of this. It's kind of the same point as like putting on the corrective lens. As God is working in your life, don't just look right here and be like, there's struggle, there's pain. So I'm complaining, I'm frustrated, and the wicked are thriving. But be like, God, give me your perspective. I want to lift my eyes and look way out there and around me and into the lives of other people. If, you, if I don't feel like you're doing something in my life right now, part of the beauty of Christian community is like I see God actively doing things in different individuals' lives, and I can celebrate with you and be like, that was God. And, and, and I know he'll do something in my life too. But for now, I'm going to be just excited for you that God's here now working. God, give us all the perspective to see as you see and to trust you. Let's pray.